0: Hey everyone, it's Kelly. As you know from listening to our past few episodes, Social Distance Assistance is coming to an end on July 7th. I'm really grateful I was able to share so many stories with you as the host, but hosting is not my dream. I'm a behind-the-scenes kind of gal, and usually get found in the credits of other podcasts as a producer or editor. So I wanted to tell you about another VPM podcast that I worked on that just launched, called Resettled. It showcases stories of refugees as they adjust to their new lives in Virginia and the milestone moments that shape their experience. Like social distance assistance, it's really story-driven. We hear from resettled refugees themselves, not as victims or statistics, but as real people living real lives right next door. So today, I'm excited to share the first episode with you, all about Arrival. I learned so much from editing this episode, and I think you will, too. You can listen to new episodes by subscribing to Resettled wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.
1: Let's turn to a different story at the intersection of jobs, business, and politics. There's very, very little that we can do to prevent the problem of refugees permeating
2: our border and coming in. This on the question of settling and integrating refugees into
1: American communities. It's very, very scary. Starting in June, Texas will no longer accept refugees for resettlement. There are still refugees who are here,
3: and their presence has created a massive crime problem.
1: Some of the roughest people you've ever seen. People that look like they should be fighting for the UFC.
2: Refugees. This word is thrown around a lot. But who does it actually refer to? They're called criminals or burdens for taxpayers. But what about people like Hamdullah Nouri, a refugee from Afghanistan?
1: When you arrive in America, you have to you become anything that you want. I was like, okay, so if I go to America, I, I would become a Shaif.
2: Or Fatma, a refugee student from Iraq.
4: We have all these like wars and countries we study about. And literally every unit, there is someone who will represent this. Okay, I live that. My mom's lived that. My parents live that. And they start talking about it. We have representative of that place. And it's beautiful.
2: And actually, arrival to the U.S. sounds a lot more like...
0: Hello. Welcome to your house. Hey. <laughs>
5: <laughs> oh. <laughs> they are happy. <laughs> Oh, oh,
2: sorry, sorry. Hi, I'm Ahmed Badr, the host of Resettled, where we explore the process of refugee resettlement in Virginia through the voices of those directly experiencing it. When we hear the word refugee, we might think of violence and tragedies from distant lands. We might think of donations and the stuff of humanitarian agency pamphlets. I've thought a lot about this because my own story and work are tied to displacement. My family was uprooted from Iraq in 2006, and we spent two years in Syria before being resettled to the United States. And over the years, I've witnessed and learned how important it is to share my family's story in order to allow other stories to rise to the surface, beyond just highlighting tragedy and pain, beyond painting refugees as passive victims. Those aren't the stories we're going to tell. Instead, Resettled tells stories of resilience. We explore displacement beyond the tragedies that may have caused it. Whether it's grappling with health-related issues, enrolling in a new school where you feel like you stand out, starting your career from scratch because degrees don't easily transfer between nations, or figuring out where you fit into American culture, the show will highlight the creative problem-solving that's required when you're searching for permanence in a new home. Almost 14,000 refugees have been resettled in Virginia since 2015. In cities like Harrisonburg and Roanoke, where the population is less than 100,000, refugees are a prominent part of the community. Even though they make up such a significant portion of the population, their stories are often hard to find. Our executive producer, Angela Messino, had been trying for years and it all started back in 2016.
6: Everybody remembers the 2016 election, right? And yeah, where they yep. were. I was actually at a comedy show. It was <laughs> it was a like part sketch, part improv, uh, all based around like election results. And they're filling out a map in real time, and then there's a couple of sketches. So the mood is light, it's fun, people are, you know, drinking beers, it's a Tuesday night. Yeah. And then, the, like, the sort of second half of the show, reality started setting in about who was going to be the president.
3: When I'm elected president, we will suspend the Syrian refugee program and we will keep radical islamic terrorists the hell out of our country
6: and i'm at this show with my friend who works for a local resettlement agency and he could not stop refreshing his phone Mm. and like as the show is going on just refresh 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 and you could tell he was getting tense After the show, you were allowed to hang around and and grab another drink and continue watching the results roll in. But he just sort of looked at me and was like, I've got to go home. And I think it was at that moment where I realized, you know, his life was about to change dramatically because his job was resettling refugees.
2: Hanging out with her friend on election night made Angela want to learn more about his work. It occurred to her, she had no idea what the resettlement process was like. She didn't even think that she knew any refugees. And she was sure she hadn't heard any stories from a refugee perspective. Many refugee stories are framed around the events that forced them to leave their home countries. Our series picks up at Arrival. In this episode, we'll follow one family's story of arrival to a new country and a new home, and the ups and downs of the first 90 days of resettlement in Virginia. In the fall of 2018, Angela spent some time with a small group that was working really hard to prepare for the arrival of one refugee family to Richmond. Members of the resettlement team go through what's called the biodata of a family before they come to the United States. So mom
1: uh, went through 10th grade and didn't complete.
2: This is Stephen Allen. He's the Richmond site director at one of the four resettlement agencies in Virginia, the International Rescue Committee, or IRC for short. He's helping prep for the arrival of the Lapai family, Mr. Zhao Tu, his wife, A ah Chu, and their three sons, all under five, arriving from Burma. As Baptists living in a predominantly Buddhist country, the Lapai family experienced religious persecution. They fled Burma and applied for refugee status. All refugees start out as asylum seekers, just like people from Central and South America who present themselves at the U.S. border for their asylum claims to be evaluated. But the refugees we feature in this series are different. While they're also fleeing their home countries because of well-founded fears of persecution, they had their claims for asylum evaluated before they landed in the US. So the meetings the resettlement team had prior to the Lapai family's arrival sounded very clinical, but they included important information like why they applied for refugee status and why they got it, the family's medical history, and their work experience and educational levels. And with this catalog, the team could brainstorm how the family might gain their footing once they arrived.
1: So he's got a Bachelor of Science degree from Mandalay University in Burma. Any thoughts about potential employment?
4: It would take some investigation, yeah. Yeah.
1: The goal is self-sufficiency, and it starts
2: with having a solid foundation.
1: Really that the rest of their life is going to depend on their ability to have a good outcome with their initial housing.
2: But just as important is setting them up with a literal foundation, a house from which to thrive, feel safe, and feel stable. And prepping that foundation might sound familiar, like moving into a new house or getting stuff for a college dorm.
6: All right, we're at Walmart.
3: Yep. Fun, fun, fun.
2: And back in 2018, Angela rode along with Zina and Dominique as they shopped for supplies to stock the La Pia family's new house. They work at IRC.
3: So what I usually do, I will always uh, go by the food aisles first, and then, and then I will move to the household items. I have the list in my head. When I do the shopping, I know what to get, exactly what to get.
2: Zina keeps a lot in her head from school records to family names
3: to who needs a check-in
2: because they've fallen off the radar.
3: I'm a very simple person.
2: Actually, Zina is quite modest.
3: I speak three languages, um, Arabic, French, and English, and I uh, finished my master's degree and then I did uh, two diplomas in education. We go and get uh, sugar
2: and all that stuff. People like Zina are some of the very first faces that the Lapaya family will see yes. and yes, get to know. Is.
3: So they will see us within those two weeks of their arrival. They will see us almost every day. We take it in heart and in mind and we do remember their needs. So every time we meet and we discuss their cases, we, uh, we share their stories to make sure that we are ready. Salt and pepper, we don't go too much with uh, different spices because at least we buy salt and pepper, and then they can do the rest later.
2: In heels and her rose-patterned hijab, Zina is quickly rattling off the shopping list and throwing various items into the carts.
3: Some trash cans, paper towels, some diapers, trash bags, some shower curtains, oil.
2: These are the last few items after weeks and weeks of preparation. And there's a lot to do to prep for a new family, from finding housing that doesn't require a credit check to picking up donations to offset costs. And there are a lot of costs that come with living in the United States. So any sort of jumpstart helps. Um,
1: They also have to pay back their airplane tickets to the uh, International Organization of Migration, um, which is through the United Nations. So there's literally no free ride
2: The home the IRC found seems to check all the boxes.
1: We're really trying to find something close to their U.S. tie and to their community.
2: The U.S. tie is the family or acquaintance that a refugee family may already have living in the U.S. Check.
1: We also have to have a house that is within a mile of a full-service grocery store. Check. What about public transportation? This home was very close to the main thoroughfare for our bus rapid transit system check. I think this family is going to hit the ground and run. My thinking is we're going to have a hard time catching up with them because they're going to be so busy and engaged.
6: It's like setting up for a surprise birthday party, right? There is all of this rush, 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 you're like, get it done, get it done, get it done. They're about to come you're sitting through the meetings, you're going grocery shopping, there's all this hustle and bustle. It's what you want to feel like you want to feel like, oh, this is so exciting. You know, that's what the resettlement agency wants. That's what the family wants. So there's a bit of pressure to it almost as well. But it's very clear from the get go, it's not going to be easy. What do you, I don't know, do you remember when, when you came to the United States?
2: I was just so excited. I was like, America, you know, I've I've heard about America in the movies. I've heard about America through these very dramatic ways. And now it's time to find out what, you know, that was about and, and what that entailed exactly. You know, I didn't realize necessarily that we're going to have a, like a specific home, a new home that we're going to be introduced to right as we arrived, because I was just, you know, so focused on just kind of moving into this new, new country and, and uh, hoping that my, you know, visions of it from the movies matched up.
6: Hi. Hi. I'm Angela.
2: Yeah, I was out Lapai. When the Lapai family finally did move in, it was a crisp, sunny fall day. There was still mud on the ground from days of rain, so the IRC staff, careful not to track mud into the house, laid down cardboard near the entrance.
4: Hello. Welcome to your hey. house. Hey.
2: The family, they are excited to move over their house, new house. Angela is with Brang,
0: the interpreter for the
2: Lapai family. The interpreter plays a key role as families settle in, helping translate both language and culture.
5: <laughs> they are happy. Oh, oh sorry, sorry.
2: Bego, bego, bego. That means keep clear. <laughs> the Lapai family waited for this moment for the past nine years as their asylum claim was being processed. They spent many of those years in a Malaysian refugee
5: camp.
4: He really
5: would like to say thank you very much. To RLC, this is his house now, so he feels happy and he's stressed, he's gone. So now he can enjoy that's what he think.
6: and your kids can enjoy
5: it. <laughs> seems like the kids playing all around you know then and we go to the backyard then the kids really excited yeah I just I remember
6: the the kids just running across the floor. With, like, no care in the world. Just standing in front of doorways, like, as we're trying to move things into rooms. <laughs> he was hiding in the closet.
5: <laughs> Be careful there are more spaces closets, okay?
6: Yeah, I mean, were were you that kid, that oh facetious nine-year-old?
2: I think so, a little bit, to a point. I think me and my sister were trying to figure out, you know... Uh, We we had our uh, one room to share, and we're trying to figure out which bed we're going to choose. You know, the one on the right or left side of the room. So that was the biggest thing I was worried about. What'd you claim? Well, I think the right. I believe the right. I want it to be like as close to the window as possible. And so I won. I won that one. You know, my first victory in America was was uh, getting the the right bed in that room. But I think uh, what you were saying earlier about the parents. I think it's it's a cautious optimism and it's a cautious like a relief right because you know that you've lived lived in uncertainty for so long and and so it's a cautious cautious kind of relief and then the kid they're they're the kids were just like well let's just pick our rooms and go from there As the Lapai kids ran around the new house, the parents learned about their new home. Keep the the door locked,
5: keep the other door, the screen screen door also locked, okay? There's also the thermostat,
2: keep that on low. Trash collection, bring the can out to the sidewalk once a week. The shower curtain, that's there for a reason and very important to use. There's new information around every corner, but for now, it's theirs. They've arrived. And as long as they pay rent on time, they can settle into a quaint, Cape Cod-style home in the suburbs of Richmond.
1: It may seem like you're just, you know, in a, in a house and that it's no big deal. You're actually um, doing something that's going to make an impact for years and years and years uh, for you and your children.
5: He's very excited because he start his journey from here and he can sense right now. He feel that from this moment, he will start from zero to hundred or a thousand, <laughs> whatever.
2: Okay, have a good rest, have a good weekend. The Lapai family uh, was on their way to laying down a solid foundation. There was just one problem. Just after arriving on this cool fall day a few days before Thanksgiving, The heating stopped working, and the Lapai family's new home. Before the break, we were following the Lapai family on their journey of arrival, one of the key moments that shaped the resettlement experience. Their biggest obstacle so far their heat was broken they are beginning to settle in despite the stark contrast between Malaysia and Richmond Virginia
6: Where? huh are you cold huh? is it cold outside yes cold oh. you just feel for you feel for any family who doesn't have heat it is a Richmond fall it is cool crisp weather and you know that they're coming from a tropical climate so on top of everything that you're experiencing to not be able to feel some moderate level of comfort you you do feel for the family because you're cheering for them all the way like everybody is rooting for this family and so when there's any little thing that happens that could, you know, derail that experience, derail their success, you're, you're just like, ah, gut punch.
2: Only a few days later, thankfully, the La Paz heat had been fixed. Functioning heat was just one obstacle. Their EBT card didn't work right away. There was an issue with the social security number for their twin boys. Resettlement agencies across the U.S. understand the many challenges that come with adjustment. Learning the language, getting around, getting a job, and try to address them by creating a series of cultural orientation sessions.
3: So my name is Zina. Uh, whatever I say, uh, try to yeah. please uh, interpret that for me. Yeah. My yeah. name yeah. is Zina. Hello. I am education and caseworker at IRC office.
5: Yeah.
3: Taking care of the uh, responsibilities here in United States has to fall on both of you. So you have to be involved in everything I teach today.
1: The cultural orientation is something that the IRC has invested a ton of um, staff time. And really, we're there to help families until they're able to help themselves. Um, but we're definitely pushing them um honestly, from the moment we pick them up at the airport, we're talking about work.
2: That's because the resettlement agency has only a few months to get refugees acclimated before they have to become self-sufficient. Upon arrival, the federal government's reception and placement program grants each refugee $1,250 to start their new life.
1: So that's only going to last um, until it's gone. So if it's, if it's gone in... Uh, a month it's gone in a month, you know, our goal is to stretch it. So typically now for us, it's lasting around three months in the country, about 90 days.
2: 90 days. Refugees have 90 days to figure out how to get around this new city without a car, coordinate their children's enrollment in schools, relaunch their careers, all without knowing English. Their arrival sets a ticking clock in motion.
4: Okay. So basically... What we're going to do today...
2: Siyasha leads the second day of cultural orientation.
4: Like I said, we're going to talk about um, what your short-term goals are going to be. So anything from one to to three years. And then we'll talk about your long-term goals, anything from three to five years. Like what you would like to accomplish for yourself and what you would like to um, kind of see happen for your family.
2: All of this information points to just how much Mrs. Lapai and her husband will need to accomplish so soon. They hang on that word. Accomplish. Brang, the interpreter, translates. Accomplish. No plan
5: for within one years.
4: There even though you're gonna be here at home, there are still some things that you can start working on that'll help you to get get your footing. For one, your English you know you you'll be able to come to class for English that's a, another thing that people really like to do in their first six months to a year is to get a driver's license you may also want to consider um, even if it's a part-time job that might this is what I was talking about um, the goal of matching grant program, um, because you live so close to a library um, is getting a library card I agreed to work with IRC staff to find
5: employment
4: So basically what I'm doing is I'm taking all these notes down so that when you feel like you're ready or when I have some resources that I can share with you, we can talk more about it and figure out um, ways to get you connected based on what your scheduling needs are um, and based on what resources we have available. So we'll just kind of stay connected to make sure that you can.
2: That is a lot of information to take in. To go through a cultural orientation knowing English is tough. To go through it in a foreign language relying on an interpreter and a group of strangers is even tougher. Remember that the IRC is there to support refugees with their arrival. But the window of time to get families like the La up and running is so short, and the amount of information they need is so huge. It's overwhelming for everyone.
1: Does the family understand what's happened so far? in their resettlement experience, and do they feel prepared for the coming months and years?
2: And it's pretty safe to say none of us were very prepared for the coming years. Remember that Angela recorded the Lapai story in 2018. Since then, Mr. Lapai got a job, and the family moved to a new house to save money. But then the pandemic hit. He lost his job, his phone is broken, and his wife got ill. So, Angela, where are we now with the Lapai family?
6: Yeah, I mean, the majority of information that I know about this family was the tidbits that I heard from the IRC during, you know, the different times that I got to check in with the caseworkers. And it was, and what I kept hearing was he's having a difficult time, job is not going well, they moved their ho- from their house because it was too expensive and it was too expensive. I mean, you knew that from one of the first moments when they were talking about how much rent was and then the realities of how much that you would be getting paid an hour for minimum wage.
2: How is their situation, you know, given the pandemic?
6: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of variables to resettlement. I think one variable people don't think about is a global pandemic. Especially as we're coming to a close with this project, finally, you know, two and a half years of following different families, of collecting stories. And here we are about to come to a close and I wanted to follow up with the family to make sure, you know, is it okay? One, that I still use your voice, but then also two, we have some questions. I finally got on the phone with Zhao, and I was so excited to just be able to reconnect again and just to see how he was doing, which is very difficult to tell because I did not have a translator. This was all in English. But the messages that came across that were clear was that, you know, now's not a good time. My wife is sick. I totally understand not having the emotional capacity to revisit this time in your life where, you know... It's from what I heard from the resettlement agency, it has not been as easy, the The future wasn't as bright as they were hoping for it to be.
2: You know, resettlement isn't neat. It's not this tidy thing that always works to perfection. There are going to be aspects of it that work, there are going to be aspects of it that don't. And at the end of the day, we can only learn about what works and what doesn't through those experiences, right? So focusing in on those stories has the potential of providing some really interesting insights for resettlement as we move forward.
6: Can I ask like why why did you join this project when I called you up and explained to you what we were trying to do? Why did you say yes?
2: I think I was drawn to this project because of the Kind of the nuanced approach to resettlement as a process, you know, and then linking the process to the stories that kind of creates and the stories it produces. The resettlement story is not often one that is told. And it's one thing to just share the stories of refugees, and it's another to share the stories and connect them to these processes that are affecting their daily lives and that affect, you know, their past, present, and critically their, their future. And so, I think demystifying the process is is something that I've always tried to do through my own work, and so this was kind of the most concrete way of of carrying that forward. You know, so it, it's important to create a project that recognizes the process and its pitfalls and its successes, but it's important. It's also even more important to understand the process through the stories that it makes possible, um, and so I think going through the stories and then building out from there what we can understand about the process is is something that's really, really special and and has the potential of of, of changing and, and shaping what we think of when we hear the word refugee as we kind of continue. And that's it for the first episode of Resettled. Throughout the rest of the series, we'll hear stories from people like the Lapai family along their journeys to resettle in Virginia. We'll explore tough questions like, how do you grow when you start over? And how do you know when you've fully resettled? And in the final episode of this series, we'll check back in with the people we've heard from along the way. Resettled is a production of VPM. It's produced by Jilda DeCarly and edited by Kelly Jones. With oversight from Angela Messino and Nate Toby, our production manager is Gavin Wright. Steve Humble is VPM's chief content officer. And I'm your host, Ahmed Badr. Music for this episode is by Sandhill and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Catherine Comp, Zar Wahidi, Yasmin Jama, and our interns Safia Ahmed and Helen Zainuddin along with the folks at NPR's Story Lab for helping us kickstart the podcast. Thanks to Leslie Bretz, Louise Keaton, and Michael Hayes for web and digital support. Be sure to check out vpm.org resettled to see more photos and stories from our community. Members are a fundamental part of VPM. Member support is especially vital right now. Through member support, we're able to provide timely and fact-based information educational resources for our kids, and informative and entertaining content to keep minds active and engaged. Be a part of what makes VPM possible. Visit vpm.org donate to become a member today.
1: VPM